Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. I want to actually give us an introduction to the Gospel of Matthew itself. And what I mean by that is I want to kind of re-articulate some of the things that I established in the last video, but then I also want to give us an overview and big picture perspective of the Gospel of Matthew. Because to me, the best way to understand these Gospels is to look at them first as a big picture thing, as the whole book, and figure out kind of how the book is structured, and that will help us make sense of each individual story as we work our way through it. And so that's kind of the goal for today. I just want to re-articulate basically an introduction to this gospel and then actually work our way through an outline that I've created that to me best encapsulates how this book is structured. And so that's what we're going to do. And then next week, we are going to actually enter into the text of scripture with Matthew chapter one, verse one. All right. So intro to Matthew. First and foremost, the author of this book is the apostle Matthew, an apostle and former tax collector, also known as Levi. Uh, obviously there are more, there's scholars out there who will debate whether or not Matthew was the actual author of this book. I think we have very, very good internal and external evidence to believe that the author of Matthew is the same person who the book is named after. I think that this was the same guy who was one of the 12 closest friends of Jesus. He was the one who was a tax collector who left everything to follow Jesus. That's who I believe wrote this book. And I think that we have good reason to believe that both, both based off of our earliest Christian testimony and also details within the book that kind of demonstrate to us that this was written by a really smart guy who knew a lot about money. And so that's the author. And then the date, I actually date this to prior to AD 44 when the church was still centralized in Jerusalem. And if you want to know why I believe that, you can go back to my last video. Um, and ultimately, the date doesn't matter that much because we know that it was written during the first century and that stuff's all sealed. Uh, but the main reason I said it earlier here is because it seems to me, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, that the Gospel of Matthew is chiefly concerned with Jewish concerns that would have primarily been... Uh, a very important apologetic need for the early church when it was still centralized in Jerusalem or Judea um, prior to the dispersion of the apostles after the death of big James, uh, James, the um, son of Zebedee. Right. And so to me, it seems like we have very good reason to think that Matthew was written very early. Uh, most scholars would hold that it was written in the fifties or sixties, but the main reason they hold that date is because they assume that Mark was written prior. Uh, whereas if you get rid of the idea that Mark was written prior, really Matthew could have been written any time. And I think that we have good reason to think that this was written during a time whenever the church was still very centralized. And so that's why you might see a discrepancy between my date and the dates given by a lot of scholars, uh, because this would actually make the Gospel of Matthew probably one of, if not the earliest book of the Bible uh, of the New Testament to be written. Uh, the audience, uh, this seems very clear, and it's not just an opinion held by me, this is actually an opinion of most scholars, is that the audience is Jewish. Uh, this is both in accordance with the tradition and various internal data in the book, and so practically everybody realizes that this is a very Jewish gospel. Uh, it takes for granted that the people who are reading it are somewhat familiar with the Old Testament, which would be known as the Hebrew Bible to Jewish people, right? And so... Uh, it's just very evident whenever you compare this one with the other Gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, this is the most Jewish of them. Maybe you could debate that with John because John is also very Jewish, but his is Jewish in a very different manner. Whereas Matthew's is very steeped in Jewish culture and it almost just assumes that the people who are reading it 
are Jews who understand Jewish culture and what's going around, uh, going on in and around Judea at this time period. Uh, and the purpose, uh, this is the purpose that I have perceived out of it, uh, just from my own personal study. It is to kind of serve as a Christian manifesto. I took that particular language from David Allen Black, uh, in his book that I referenced in the last video. Uh, but he used the term Christian manifesto to describe the gospel of Matthew. And I think that's actually a very accurate term. Uh, it's basically, uh, where Matthew is establishing the basis of what Christianity is. And basically from the beginning of the gospel to the end of the gospel, his main goal is just articulating what is the Christian faith and what sets it apart from the other sects of Judaism that were around at that time period. Uh, and it really is just exalting Jesus. It is showing who he is, what sets him apart, what his claims were, what his teachings were, what he believed about the kingdom of God, how prophecy played into all of this stuff. And so it really is a kingdom manifesto, a manifesto of the Christian faith. And the two goals that this Christian manifesto has is firstly to defend the kingship of Jesus and secondly to detail the foundation of Christian belief. So on one hand, Matthew is primarily concerned uh, with defending the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of the messianic promise that was given in the Old Testament, uh, the fulfillment of both the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, and that he is ultimately the one through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. He is the one with all authority. That is the first and foremost thing that Matthew is trying to defend in this book. But then secondly, he's also laying the foundation of what we as Christians believe, and he's establishing these base Christian concepts that set Christian Christianity apart from everyone else, right? So he's also detailing the implications of what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, right? Because Jesus being the Messiah, as we'll see through this book, is vastly different than what Jewish people expected from the Messiah at that time period. And so since his Messiahship and his authority takes a different form and fashion than what the Jewish people thought at that time, it follows that there's going to be different implications as a result of him being the Messiah. And so it seems to me that is the main thing that Matthew is trying to accomplish. And in that way, you could say that this gospel has, as a primary goal, uh, it has a very apologetic nature. And what I mean by apologetic, I'm not saying he's saying he's sorry. I'm using that in the um, like doctrinal sense or how we usually use it in theological um, situations. Uh, apologetic means to defend, right? So this is Matthew defending the faith from a Jewish perspective for a Jewish audience to demonstrate to them that Jesus not only has a legitimate claim to the throne, but he is the Messiah and detailing the implications of that both for all Jewish people and ultimately for all the world as a result of the fact that this Jewish king does not only have authority over the Jews, but he has authority over all heaven and all earth, right? And so these seem to be the different things that make the gospel of Matthew distinct from Mark, Luke, and John, because ultimately they're all telling the same story, but they have different goals in mind. And to me, I think that if you follow the evidence, both internal and external, you get this portrait of Matthew where you have this guy who is addressing the needs of the early church in its infancy, where it is still centralized in Judea, it is still centralized in Jerusalem, and it's addressing the common concerns that would have arisen at that time period, where you have a lot of growing Jewish opposition to this faith and you need answers for it. Is Jesus truly the Messiah? What is it about us that sets us apart from everyone else? That seems to be what Matthew is ultimately trying to communicate. And so that's an introduction to Matthew. Now what I want to do is I want to turn our attention and I want to give us a big outline of the book and then we're going to walk through it section by section just so you can understand kind of how I arrived at this outline and how ultimately I got to the structure. Because ultimately with this book, you got to understand 
people debate about the structure of Matthew, and it's actually one of the most perplexing things. I was reading a few commentaries in preparation for this, and people have just talked about how really no single commentator can agree on one particular structure that Matthew has. And so what you're about to see here is just from my own personal study where I've arrived at, and I've compared, compared it with a lot of other people's and stuff, and this is where I land. So the way that I see the book of Matthew outlined is, first off, you have this extended portion of it, which is the majority of the book, and it is situated as a series of narratives and discourses. And it goes back and forth by giving you extended narratives, so a lot of stories about Jesus, and each of those narratives will be ended by a discourse, by a moment of speaking, where Jesus will communicate something to a crowd of people, and that will say something that kind of fulfills those narratives that came before it, and also leads into the next section. And then at the very end of the book, you have a passion narrative, right? And so after you have all these narratives, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, narrative, discourse, then you get to the ultimate point that pretty much all of the Gospels have, and you get to this point where Jesus ultimately lays down his life, he dies, and he is resurrected, right? And so that just seems to be a separate section on its own because it's so crucial to the story that every gospel has to include that element in particular. And so the way I break it down is this. Uh, the first section would be the person and the platform of the king. Uh, and the narrative is ultimately Matthew authenticating Jesus, right? He is demonstrating that Jesus has a valid claim to the throne, and that's really the whole first four chapters of the book. It is Matthew demonstrating through the fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus is the Messiah, and that he has a valid claim to it. And from a Jewish audience's perspective, this is basically garner garnering their interest, right? It's drawing them into where they're like, oh, wow, these Christians aren't just claiming he's the Messiah. They have reason to believe it. And so he's giving authentication for Jesus's authority. And then you have this extended discourse, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. And I would say that this details the authority of the king. So you see Jesus speaking, but he's not speaking as the scribes and Pharisees do. Instead, he is speaking with power and with authority. And he's quoting the scriptures, but he's acting as if he himself knows how to interpret them better than anybody who's preceded him. Right? And so that's really, really important for us to understand. Matthew begins his whole book by detailing who Jesus is and what platform he is taking, the person and the platform. It demonstrates that he does have a valid claim to the throne and is detailing basically how he views his kingdom and how he ultimately is the lawgiver of that kingdom. And then we move on to another series of narratives and discourses, and I call this the power and the proof of the king. And once again, we're going to go through these a little bit more in depth momentarily. But right here what we see is that we get to see that not only does Jesus have the right credentials, and not only does Jesus have the right message, but he actually has the power to back it up. And so we get to see a series of miracles that Jesus goes, like, like that he goes about, that demonstrates that he has power over a bunch of stuff. He has power over sickness. He has power over the weather. He has power over life and death itself. And we get to demonstrate that Jesus actually can authenticate these things himself beyond just the realms of prophecy. We also have Jesus himself through his actions demonstrating that he is somebody who has been commissioned by God. And that leads us into chapters 10, uh, chapters 10 to the beginning of chapter 11, where Jesus actually sends out his own disciples to go on their own mission, and he gives them a mission to do as well. So we see that Jesus is this person who's come to do this one particular thing, but then he also has disciples who he has given a mission to do as well. Uh, and then we get to our third section, which is the reception and rejection of the king. So in light of what Matthew has demonstrated about who Jesus is and what his kingdom is going to be about and what he's capable of doing and what he's sending his disciples to go do, we get to see 
various different reactions to who Jesus is. We get to see some people receiving him, some people rejecting him, some people totally rejecting him, and some people feeling kind of mixed. And so in the narrative section of this, we just get to see the practices of the king, right? The practices of Jesus and the things that he went about and did and how he would withdraw at times, and how he would go do different things like that. And ultimately, we just get to see what his ministry looked like. But then through his continual rejection because over the course of this narrative we see that it starts with acceptance but over time more and more people are rejecting him as a result of him being rejected we get to this discourse section where jesus actually begins to conceal his message from the people because they have rejected him and so he starts speaking in parables and he begins to teach not as overtly as he did in the sermon on the mount but he begins to teach through veiled stories that some can understand and some can't understand uh, and this is all in light of the different responses people have had those people who have accepted him like his apostles they receive special insight and jesus will draw them aside and he'll explain the parables to them however the people who rejected him they'll be left baffled and they'll be left arguing over what exactly these are and jesus says that is intentional it's kind of like uh they actually quote the prophecy um they go quote a prophecy from the book of Isaiah where this was exactly Isaiah's mission because the people were so hard-hearted he was supposed to speak in parables so that the people would hear but they would not understand and that's exactly what Jesus is doing because the people reject him he speaks in parables and you'll notice that throughout all of this I put of the king of the king of the king of the king that's because I'm trying to drive home the point that is Matthew's main message he is demonstrating that Jesus is king and if you want to see my defense of that go back to the first video in the series our fourth section comes with the program and pronouncements of the king. And basically, this is just advancing what Jesus is doing in light of his rejection. And what we see in the narrative is that because he is being rejected so much, Jesus begins to withdraw. He subtracts himself from society. And so through this narrative, we get to see a series of repetitive subtractions where Jesus withdraws to one place, withdraws to another place, withdraws to another place. And that word's going to show up multiple times, withdraw, withdraw, withdraw. And you get the idea that because he is being rejected, Jesus is having to withdraw, not because he's scared of the people, but because he ultimately knows knows that if he doesn't withdraw, he will die far sooner than the opportune time. And he's waiting to die at the appropriate time because he wants to offer himself up, not be taken by force. And so that's exactly what we're going to see happen. And then we get to see this discourse where Jesus basically lays out his standards for uh, ministry, right? His standards for discipleship. And he tells people, hey, this is how the world values things. This is what I value. And you can understand why this would take place right here, because as Jesus is withdrawing and as he is subtracting from the crowds, you're going to be kind of baffled by this. You're going to be like, Jesus, whoa, why are you going and doing this? Because it seems so countercultural. You were so popular and now you're withdrawing from people and you're going away. And even though you're being rejected, you're not doing anything to limit that rejection. And you're actually totally fine with that. And he begins to explain that he values things differently than the world values things. And so you get this discourse in chapter 18 where he just explains the difference between his kingdom and the worldly kingdom and the different value system that you have in both of those. And that leads us to our final set of narrative and discourses. And basically this is the thing that leads us to Jerusalem because Jesus decides it is time. The time has come. He is going to go lay his life down. And so they travel down to Jerusalem and you get the presentation and the predictions of the king. The presentation of the king is whenever Jesus presents himself as the rightful king. He declares himself the Messiah through riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, welcomed by the praises of those who would receive him. 
But then once he gets into Jerusalem, Jesus is going to do a bunch of stuff that ruffles some feathers and he's going to escape and go back to the Mount of Olives where he rode in from a donkey. And he's going to predict destruction coming upon Jerusalem and predict his future coming whenever he returns once again to his apostles. Once again, you have that private revelation showing up in there. And so you've got the narrative and the discourse. The narrative is the correction of the king because he presents himself, right? You have this whole ongoing story where he goes down into Jerusalem and we call it the triumphal entry, but really it's not as triumphal as you might think because really it's misunderstood. People welcome him as one thing, but he turns out to be another. They welcome him as a conquering king, but really he comes as a suffering servant who's going to lay down his life. And so he goes there, and over the course of the next few chapters, from chapters 19 through 23, Jesus really just begins hammering all the different Jewish people. He's flipping tables, and he's doing all this different stuff. He is rebuking the Pharisees. He's rebuking everybody. He is combating with them, and he's correcting their theology because he's demonstrating the fact that they are rejecting him because they have failed to understand who God is. And so he's correcting them, and as a result, he is ultimately rejected by the Jewish people which leads him to go out of Jerusalem and you get to that final discourse, which is the coming of the king, where he draws some of his apostles aside and he details the events that will lead ultimately to the destruction of Jerusalem, but also to his future return. Because ultimately there's this whole thing that the Jews didn't expect where Jesus is going to leave for a while, but then he's going to come back and in the future he will establish his kingdom. And so there's the narratives and discourses. And then what you see after that is you have the death and resurrection of the king. Uh, after you have the narratives and discourses, courses, you get to the thing that's at the end of each of the Gospels, where you ultimately just have Jesus's passion, the passion of the Christ. First off, you have the passion of the king, and then the power of the king. The passion of the king would be where he willingly uh, chooses to submit himself unto death, right? He goes, he celebrates his final meal with his apostles. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays. He allows himself to be taken into captivity once he is betrayed by one of his closest friends. He is tried unfairly. He is tried again and again and again. And even though everybody is saying that he's innocent, they deem him guilty and he dies on a cross. But then you get the power of the king. Because three days later, he comes back to life. And after he comes back to life, he appears to multiple people. And after he appears to multiple people, he gives out this great commission where he declares, and these are the final words of the whole gospel, that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. He is not only the Messiah, but he is the ruler of the heavens and the earth. And therefore, he sends his disciples to go out into the world and to proclaim this good news. And so that is ultimately an overview of the Gospel of Matthew. That's the big picture stuff. And if you want to go through the Gospel of Matthew, you can see how it kind of fits into those categories. But now what I want to do is I just want to very briefly go through each of these and just show you how I arrived at this different outline, just because to me, this was actually kind of fun to come across. So first off, we have the person and platform of the king, which I've broken down into narrative and discourse, the narrative being the authentication of the king, then the discourse being the authority of the king. And so Matthew, in the first section, he's authenticating Christ's ministry. He is demonstrating that Jesus has a right to the throne, and he does this in four primary ways, through his genealogy, through his birth, through his predecessor, John the Baptist, and through his ministry. And with each of those four things, Matthew is going to cite Old Testament prophecy that demonstrate that this is exactly what we should have expected of the Messiah. 
Then he goes to the authority of the king, and this is where Jesus lays down his view of the kingdom, and he is speaking as king to his future citizens of the kingdom, and he's saying, this is what I expect my kingdom to be like. He details the citizens of the kingdom. That's where we have the Beatitudes. He details the commands of the kingdom. This is where he says, you have heard that it was said this, but I say this. So he actually raises the instructions and the commands of the law. And then he gives the culture of the kingdom, and he details things that the kingdom will value that is different than what the world values. And then he gives the character of the kingdom at the very end, and he demonstrates how kingdom citizens will be set apart from everybody else. Then we move on to the second set of narrative and discourses, the power and the proof of the king. And what we see here is that the narratives are actually split up, like the narrative section of this one is actually split up with other little smaller discourses, all of which revolve around discipleship. And so in the miracles of the king, what we have are we have three miracles of healing followed by a call to discipleship. Then we have three miracles of authority, followed by the challenge of discipleship. And then we have three miracles of restoration, followed by a summary of his miracle ministry, right? And so we actually have this nice little back and forth where Matthew will list out three miracles and then a brief dialogue about discipleship. Three miracles and then a brief dialogue about discipleship. And then three more miracles and then a summary of the whole ministry that Jesus has in regards to miracles. And so that's actually really cool how there's like that structure right there. Then we get to the mission of the king. And we get to see this is where Jesus actually appoints his 12 and sends them out on a mission. So we see that Jesus isn't doing this alone. And yes, while he is the king, he isn't functioning alone here. And he actually has a job for everybody else. And so he appoints the 12. He gives them instructions on the mission that they're going to go on. And then he gives them a warning about the dangers they're going to face during that mission. And that's what we see in chapter 10, verse 1 for, through chapter 11, verse 1. Then we move on to our third set of discourses, uh, narrative and discourses. And first off, we have the practices of the king, and we see that his practices ultimately lead to his rejection, and it's a progressive rejection over the course of this narrative, right? So first off, he's rejected by his people. So there's going to be certain things that happen where the Jewish people reject Jesus, but then not only do the people reject Jesus, but we actually see that his leaders reject Jesus, right? The people who should have known this was the Messiah, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people who should have known these things, they themselves also reject Jesus. And then not only do the people and leaders reject Jesus, but we actually have a very sad story at the very end of this where his own family rejects him. Uh, and we see that his brothers and sisters, they didn't believe in him either. And so we see that his practices, while righteous and holy and good, ultimately led to his own rejection. Which therefore leads us to our third set of discourses, uh, which is the parables, where Jesus, as a result of being rejected, shares parables. And he details things about the kingdom that he is hiding from everybody else. He shares a few parables, which are about the people of the kingdom. These are parables that specifically talk about the nature of people in his kingdom that he's establishing. And then he has parables about values in the kingdom, and then ultimately parables about the nature of the kingdom itself and how the kingdom is different than how people typically might perceive it. But the largest section of that would be the people of the kingdom because that's the main thing he's communicating through these parables. It's practical things about citizens in his kingdom, practical thing about what Christians look like. And that's what we learn from those parables. Moving on to our fourth set of narratives and discourses, uh, we get Jesus subtracting, right? This is where he is withdrawing from everybody. And you see this through the sections. First off, you have this public withdrawal uh, in chapter 13, verse 53, and that goes all the way uh, through the end of chapter 14. And he withdraws from the people and he goes and does some stuff. And then at the beginning of chapter 15, we read that he withdraws once again. And there's different circumstances that lead to these withdrawals. And we'll see that whenever we go through the book. But he withdraws once again. And then when we get to chapter 16 and 17, 
17, we see that most of the things that he's doing are being revealed privately to his disciples, and they're not as public as they once were. And so as a result of withdrawing and withdrawing and withdrawing from the public, he has started giving more specific and intimate teachings to his inner close like group of disciples, right? And so this is just kind of how Jesus' ministry went. And then we get another discourse where revealing this to the disciples, he demonstrates what he values in his kingdom. Uh, and this is very similar to stuff that we've already seen in the parables and very similar to what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. But that's because a lot of these discourses are demonstrating very similar concepts. It's showing that Jesus' kingdom is not like a worldly kingdom. It is not the same as what you might expect from any other kingdom in the world. And so he details what he views as greatness in the kingdom and how really his whole system is flip-flopped from what the world typically views as great. He also talks about what discipline in the kingdom is going to look like and how you correct things in his kingdom society versus how other people might view it. And then he also demonstrates grace in the kingdom, right? What does it look like to forgive and how his call to forgiveness is so much higher than you might expect in any other kingdom. That leads us to our fifth section here, the narratives and discourses. Uh, and this is our final one uh, prior to the passion narrative. Uh, and first off, you have the correction of the king. So first off, you have Jesus entering into Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. He flips some tables. And then he spends the rest of that section just correcting the leaders. And what I did here, the titles I gave them uh, are really kind of callbacks to some Old Testament stuff. Uh, but also to some things that Jesus calls the Pharisees. And so first off, I have Jesus unblinding the eyes. And this is where Jesus is basically revealing his true nature to everybody. And it begins with Jesus entering into Jerusalem and the people think that they know what's happening, but really we see that they were blind to what was going on. And so he's unblinding their eyes and he goes in there. And while they expected him to be a conquering king, he goes in and starts flipping the tables of the temple. And he demonstrates that he was not as much concerned with the Romans as he was with the sinfulness going on within the camps of Judaism at that time. And then you have eyes, but not seeing, because not only has he unblinded their eyes, but he demonstrates that even though they can see, they're not actually seeing what's before them. And so you have Jesus correcting people and he's really getting onto them, which leads us to our final part, the final issue of all of this, the blind guides, because Jesus's main condemnation here is not directed at the Jewish people at large, but specifically the leaders who allowed them to get to this point. And so he starts like voicing these rebukes and he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, woe to you, hypocrites. And he gets onto the leaders because they are the blind guides who have led to the people having eyes, but not seeing and ultimately being blind in their eyes. Right. And so you have Jesus reversing this and he demonstrates that he isn't chiefly concerned with the Romans and their oppression. He's chiefly concerned with the sinfulness within the Jewish people. And so that is what his correction's about, which leads to the final discourse where Jesus gets away from Jerusalem. He goes back to the Mount of Olives. And so really this section begins and ends at the same place. It begins on the Mount of Olives and it ends on the Mount of Olives. But now instead of being surrounded by a group of people who are welcoming him with palm branches, he's surrounded by just a small group of his disciples. And he begins to share with them what's going to come in the future. He details the future hardship that they're going to face. He details the present preparation that they need to take in light of his future coming. And then he details the future judgment that will come when he comes back ultimately. And so we see here that he didn't come to judge the first time. He came for salvation. And that's what we're about to see in this final section of Matthew. But he is preparing his disciples for that future coming and for that future judgment. Which then leads us to uh, the final section here. And I think I put part, yeah, I put part five up there. It's supposed to say part six. That's a typo on my part. 
Nobody's perfect. Uh, and this is where we get the passion of the king followed by the power of the king. And with this one, this is where really the structure of Matthew just kind of breaks down a little bit uh, because it's no longer narrative and discourse. It's just narrative. And that's because it's detailing the most significant events where the ultimate structure kind of falls to the wayside in order to detail the culmination of Christ's ministry. Because yes, he taught these amazing things. Yes, he did these amazing things. Yes, he performed these amazing miracles. And yes, he had some amazing things to teach to even just his disciples. But ultimately, the reason he came was to lay down his life. And so what we get here in the Passion of the King is we get to see the plot for his death, the trials that led to his death, the crucifixion, so the details of his death, and ultimately the burial that followed afterwards, right? And so basically, these are just the final uh, the final day, like the, the passion of the king right here, this is just the final day of Christ's life leading to his death. But then the story doesn't end there. And you get to see the power of the king in the final chapter where we see that Jesus has authority over death and not only authority over death, but authority over all. So he rises from the grave. People come see him. Um, well, they see the empty tomb and then ultimately he appears to multiple people. And then the book ends with him declaring that he has authority over all things in heaven and on earth. And ultimately, that's what the Gospel of Matthew is about. And so I hope this video was informative for you. I hope that it laid the groundwork really well to establish where we're going to head in the series. Hopefully it gives you a better big picture view of Matthew in a way that you've never seen it before. Uh, because to me, this is always very helpful in helping me understand a book. If I can just look at it big picture and say, what does it seem Matthew is trying to communicate in these? And ultimately, I'm just guessing, right? Because I'm just looking at what other scholars have said. I'm just looking at my own personal study. Ultimately, until I sit down in heaven with Matthew and ask him, hey, why did you put this in this order? We'll never know fully why he wrote the things he wrote them and why he put them in that order. I'm just guessing as best I can based off my own personal study and based on my own personal research. Um, but to me, this seems to be the best way to make sense of how the gospel is structured. And once you understand that, it becomes a lot easier to go through the book, how we're going to go through it. Because like I said, we are going to go verse by verse, but we're not going to be looking for every single little detail and nuance that Matthew has. Because if that were the case, we would have hundreds of videos that would last multiple years. And that's not my goal right now. Maybe one day we can do that on this channel. But right now, my goal is simply to look at what makes Matthew unique and how what Matthew has written advances his ultimate goal. And so once we understand the big picture of it, we can look at that a lot better because we can say, okay, how does this section right here contributes to Matthew's overall argument. And I hope that's really helpful for you because then, if anything, you can watch these videos every week and you can spend the rest of the week going even more in depth because once we've established the big picture stuff, you can go deeper and deeper and deeper and you can glean some really important stuff from scripture while still staying true to the overall goal of the book. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in, and I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate, this has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face, and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.